welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the beginning of some Sundance episodes. I, I don't know exactly how many, but just to start off, I'm going to do a preview of the films that are uh, in this edition. Not all of them, just some highlights. And I'm very pleased to be joined for this preview, as, as numerous times before, uh, by Amy Taubin. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Nick. I... I actually dreamed last night that I was flying to Sundance. I mean, I actually got on a plane in my dream, and I'll say more about that later, but it was a very sensory experience, and I still can't believe that I'm not going to be sitting in the lobby of what used to be called the Yarrow, and it's now some chain hotel, for, you know, 10 days. (laughs) I mean, you've been going to Sundance 1989. Right. And I only missed one year when there was illness in the family. <laughs> I mean, it's a real ritual. I think you were, you were, you were just telling me that it's, it's, you have a sensory experience to it, just sitting there, and, and that's going to be lacking this year. Well, it'll be lacking, but I haven't really gotten it into my head that I'm not going to be there. <laughs> and the way I think about it and talk about it it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to get up and go to that theater or get up and go to that theater because I know which theaters usually house the documentaries and which theaters usually, and how am I going to get from that to that? No, I am going to be sitting in front of this very nice screen, which is my desktop screen, which in certain ways is better than a projection, except that it is small and there are no people sitting with me. <laughs> yeah, it's it is a solitary experience. I mean, and that's such a huge thing at, at, at Sundance is just feeling the, the presence of other people in the room and uh, reacting uh, all, all together. And you know, sometimes being with them, and sometimes uh, you know, a common Sundance experience for me is also just feeling like I'm the only person in the room who's not liking something. But it's definitely going to be strange. And I also kind of wonder whether movies are going to hit the same way? Are they going to have the same impact? Because that's just part of the whole legend of Sundance, how a story about the movie is created with that that one premiere. I mean, absolutely. And very often, if you have a good press pass at Sundance, you choose to go to the premieres in the mark because you want to see how the house is going to react and who's there among the buyers. Now, That isn't so true anymore in the most recent years because movies are pre-bought. Very few deals have been getting made at Sundance anymore. It's not like, you know, people are having fistfights in rooms after the premiere because (laughs) two buyers want this movie. It's just not like that anymore. So movies are either pre-sold or they're sold really after the festival. But still... The feeling of those theaters and who's there is a big part of Sundance. Sundance has never liked to think of itself as a market, but it's gotten to be more and more of a market as the years have gone on. Although something you noted when we were chatting before is also true. Yeah, I mean, one other thing, and uh, I don't know how related it is to this particular year and you know everyone being dispersed in this way, um, because I think it was a little true last year, but there don't seem to be 
uh, as many stars uh, of, of whatever uh, intensity uh, this year as in past years. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the festival just making its mark on, on a media uh, ecosystem that very often relies on, on that for an event of any sort to have a profile. I mean, I'm not oriented toward stars or movies that have stars in them. Uh, so I didn't notice last year so much. I think in the past five years, there has been a concerted effort by the Sundance people to make it less of a market and less where people come to, you know, see the stars of whatever movies are playing as they walk up and down Main Street. I just think the festival has pulled back from that. This year, it looks to me like just as the studios are withholding their big movies in the hopes that someday we'll get back to theaters, which is still a kind of iffy thing. And I think the same thing has kind of happened at Sundance, that small companies that have made movies that have stars and made them obviously before the pandemic because most of these movies were made before the pandemic unless they are strange movies that are made about and during the pandemic and there are a few of those so they didn't have many titles to choose from right and i think like other festivals, they, they they slimmed down just the number of films. And I'd like to think it was an opportunity to, to think, well, people are going to be watching, a lot of people are going to be watching this uh, online, uh, or through their computers or otherwise streaming. So why not feed people a pipeline of movies that they might not otherwise seek out for for kind of more obvious reasons. So I, I, it's also worth mentioning uh, the existence of Sundance satellites that are going on uh, during the festival, which is something I just really love about this year's edition, that they have partnered with theaters uh, across the country, just lots of different states, lots of different cities and, and, and locales. And I just think that's something that's almost Overdue. I mean, I guess a version of this maybe has happened in some way in the past, but the idea that movies are going to be showing and being brought to audiences in that way seems like one of the happier byproducts of, of this weird dispersed Sundance. Right. And be brought to audiences either in drive-ins or in real theaters. That is great. I mean, I was trying to figure out, well, since... You know, you pay for the platform and you pay for the days and hours. So why did they condense the festival into fewer movies? Mm. And then I figured out, I think, that you have to balance selling tickets. I mean, there are paying customers for this festival. And when people go to Sundance for the experience of Sundance, you know, you talk to them in the supermarket and they say, we couldn't get tickets for any of the big movies, but we walked into this movie. Some I remember some guy telling me about a strange foreign movie, and I forget what it was. It was one of the great movies of all time. He said, I couldn't get a ticket to anything else, so I just walked into that. So when people come to Sundance for the experience, they'll go see anything at night, where when they're online, they won't necessarily buy two tickets a day for movies with no stars that they've never heard of, that the descriptions tell them nothing. So I think, you know, for people who pay to go, and that is a necessary part of the festival, I mean, they have to finance themselves somehow. We're freeloaders, but the industry people pay. 
but the press doesn't. And I think they had to go smaller for that reason, figuring out how many tickets to absolutely unknown movies would paying customers pay for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we say it's also a, a newer edition or different edition, that's partly uh, a change in leadership as well since uh, last year. I mean, I'm not always one for kind of inside baseball festival uh, critiques, um, but there's there's a new festival head in, in Tabitha Jackson, whose background is in nonfiction. At Sundance. At Sundance, yeah. Do you think there is some way that that change in leadership has affected things as well? or? I can't tell. I mean, I think she's terrific. And, um, but I thought John was a wonderful festival director too. And so there's obviously going to be a difference, but I think it's too soon to tell all that. And I kind of have sympathy for anyone who's coming into their first year of a festival now uh, with all this happening. It's incredible that things are it's just up up and running and <laughs> at all and and they've done a really good job in making it very easy for uh vocal complainers like critics <laughs> to to see things i mean it's really i mean so far it seems like it will be smooth sailing for seeing movies and also seeing them the way uh paying customers will be seeing them with q and a's at the end so that part of the experience gets preserved so uh yeah definitely kudos um on 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 that front yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'll just pause to 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 note that it is it is actually snowing outside uh, my window now, and I, probably your window as well. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> so there's yeah, just just a little. There's something something in the air. The, the the Sundance comes to us. I don't miss the walking on the black ice in the parking lot at three in the morning. <laughs> I don't. No, definitely not. Well, maybe we can talk about some of the titles that we're looking forward to, uh, with, with the caveat, of course, that this is a preview. So, you know, we're not going to be uh, able to talk about movies uh, in, in a review way. But I think there is maybe one movie that you, you'll want to give a big shout out to. <laughs> right. And I even cleared it with their representatives because we're not supposed to break embargoes. But they were very happy for me to say that Dash Shaw's Crypto Zoo is a fucking masterpiece. Uh, I mean, now, this is Amy Talbin, and she has some weird ideas in her history about masterpieces, like a film that it's not unlike, like, um, or my reaction is not unlike to Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, which actually has just out in a double Blu-ray from Arrow, a director's cut and the original cut. But anyway, CryptoZoo is actually better than (laughs) Southland Tales. And in a way, it was a great relief that I saw it on my own small screen in my own house, because if I had been watching it in a theater, I think I would have been under my seat half the time, if not walking out in terror the way I did when I saw Snow White first when I was five years old. Uh, It is an animated film. And Dash Shaw is famous for his graphic novels. And he made one feature before this one seven years ago. This film was seven years in the making, which also played at Sundance. And it was my entire high school sinking it into the sea. And 
I mean, my entire high school was like baby talk compared to them. And I also should say that he made it. It is a collaboration with his wife, Jane Zamboski, who is a great animator, as is Dash. And Dash has writer-director credit, and Jane has head of animation credit. And basically, it's a film about the power of the imagination and dreaming and how easily we can be led into thinking we're doing a good thing by commercializing our creative imagination. I mean, that's one reading among many readings. And it just goes, and it goes like interlocking dreams that every time you think you've managed to wake up from one, you're in the next one. And it also has a character in it who is the sought-after cryptid, who is this sweet, sweet animal, non-binary animal, (laughs) who sucks away your bad dreams. And that's the sought-after object of desire. It begins and is basically set during the era of hippies and free love. So it begins in a kind of icky garden of Eden with this couple making love, and they discover this fence that's fencing off this thing, and they get into it, and it's the crypto zoo, and I won't say any more. I don't think this is a film for children. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it to death. I mean, I just, and the animation is brilliant, and I've never seen an animated film that uses abstract color washes expressively the way this film does, and the soundtrack is amazing. That definitely sounds, uh, that sounds amazing. I, it sounds like it's also just the, the right movie <laughs> for, for, for right now. Um, it's the only movie I've seen since the lockdown that I didn't think of the pandemic once as I was watching it. I mean, I was totally absorbed. What section is that in? That's the oddest thing, because it's seven years in the making. It has some famous actors on the voice tracks, and yet it's in Next, which traditionally was not an experimental section, but a section for films that were no-budget films. And that broke about three years ago, and you started seeing films that were really good and more expensive than Next, and this is obviously one of them. Hmm. So that's Crypto Zoo. It seems like we should all enter uh, the Crypto Zoo. That's that's one movie. And then the, the documentary slate, is there anything there that uh, you, you're also uh, look, looking forward to? One of the four opening night films, Nanfu Wang's In the Same Breath, which is brilliant, and a film only she could have made because Nanfu, this is, I guess, her third feature. And she made the great one-child nation two years ago. And she was born in China. She's in her late 30s, and she's only lived in the United States for nine years. And so it is about Wuhan at the beginning of the pandemic. And she goes, although in a certain sense, it's dangerous for her to go to China because uh, she's been so critical in her films. But she goes to visit her mother and her family every uh, New Year's. 
And so this year she went back on January 1st and took her two-year-old child with her and her husband. And on January 1st, there was this enormous, you know, celebration and the footage is there. And she puts together footage of, you know, Chinese television, women singers, singing about the glory of China. I mean, if I ever loathe China, it is after seeing her films. And she does not mean to do that, but she gets those women up there just singing mindlessly. But at the same time, that same day, it's the New Year's Day, there was an announcement that no one noticed on television that seven people have been arrested for spreading false rumors about a mysterious pneumonia. And when she goes home to the U.S., the lockdown hasn't started. So I suspect that most of the shooting she didn't do, but she recruited people to shoot. And it's not a fly-on-the-wall film at all. It's a very structured, analytic film. But that shows you Wuhan during the pandemic. But it's what happens to people after the fact. The people who are so angry that they couldn't see their loved ones before they died and that there were, you know, just massive deaths that were never talked about in the numbers. How almost all of them by a year from now have turned around to say China is strong. But it is not an anti-China film because by the very end, she makes this magnificent cut that shows that this authoritarian country and the United States, which is having massive demonstrations in favor of lies, you know, that the pandemic never existed, are two sides of a coin. And without making a spoiler, the point of the film is that we will only get worse and worse in the world as long as there are leaders that care about their own power and not about the welfare of the people they're meant to be serving. And the analysis in the film is brilliant. Given the way the pandemic has been covered in documentaries so far, which obviously is not that extensive because it's most people are just, I think, trying to survive, much less make a documentary about about it. But there have been a couple of of movies, 76 Days, which, uh, I mean, comparatively speaking, uh, is maybe a a more hopeful uh, movie than this sounds, just because it focuses on hospital workers and Wuhan hospitals and how they're just doing their their best. Um, And then before that, we had an Alex Gibney making an uh, Alex Gibney movie about uh, the the pandemic, totally under control. But this sounds like an interesting bringing together of different strands in in a way. But yeah, I mean, one, One Child Nation... That is a terrifying movie. So very curious to see in, in the same breath. The other documentary that I think is really, really strong is Natalia Almada's Users. I also think that she is, I mean, she is brilliant. And this film is a pretty risky film. But, you know, its basis is she had a child. And she started thinking about, what would happen to this child in the world we are now in, in the world we will be in if we survive, 
in relation to technology and what will that child's memories be like of being raised in a way by mothers, technological mothers that are more perfect than a human mother could ever be. You know, the the apparatus that rocks your child in a perfect rhythm. But it also, from that dyad, that mother-child dyad, she's able to expand it very, very large, you know, into the beauty of nature and the tragedy of the environment that is happening now. There's a lot of food for thought there. Uh, it, I got to thinking that it was about the material nature of existence, uh, basically at a certain point, and how that might change. I also think that movies are not, often are not well served by the writing about them, either from festival people or from their own press people. And I kind of bridled at the comparison to Malik in the little thing about users. Uh, because it's much more like Chris Marker. I mean, this is a film that in a way picks up where Chris Marker left off at the end of his life in relation to what will the future look like. Well, that's that's users. I want to make sure we also touch upon other uh, segments of, of Sundance uh, because they've they've also managed to keep up the different uh, threads, they, uh, which usually are just a pretty overwhelming um you know fleet of, of of events talks and also series uh, episodic series i mean i have to admit sometimes if i'm at a festival it can be a little less tempting to go see uh you know a couple of entries of an episodic series at a theater but if everything's kind of on the same size screens now for a lot of people watching <laughs> yeah i mean i'll never forget seeing uh top of the lake at Sundance, and that the audience sitting in the Egyptian theater was just mesmerized for six hours of Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, series one. And I don't think there's anything there this year that's as big as that. These seem to me, uh, including the Adam Brooks, which is something that I would like to see at home in my small screen. But what they've also done is they have a big emphasis on New Frontier. New Frontier is where, I mean, they even will send you glasses to use. The New Frontier has gotten bigger and bigger at Sundance. It started as experimental feature films that you go into the theater, and then it expanded to experimental performances. And then it got to be a whole place where you would go and see virtual reality. So... You come to New Frontier at Sundance, and the first thing they do is that you create an avatar, and they have a whole New Frontier lineup that's quite large. They even have a New Frontier bar where you can go and hang out. <laughs> yeah, that's they really did not balk at the problem of, of remoteness. Uh, for better or worse, that's a big part of the future, is, is that sort of remote experience, so... I've boycotted New Frontier for years because the truth is that Sundance is, it's a petri dish of colds and ordinary viruses. And I, every time I went to New Frontier, I would end up getting sick because you are sharing equipment and you are sticking 
her nose and eyes in equipment and I don't care that they wiped them down with alcohol. So I can use my own at home. I don't have to share anything. And so this is the first time in five years I'll have anything to do with New Frontier. <laughs> so it's the newer, the, the, the kinder, gentler, more hygienic frontiers. <laughs> I, I probably should have thought about that more now that I think about it when I've tried VR experiences. I was probably taking home some experience as well when I was doing those. So yeah, well, that's that's the new frontiers. And did you want to mention a talk or two? Or I... I'm very interested in this talk that Ralph Peck is going to be giving. He has an HBO series coming up in April called Exterminate All Brutes. And it's really, as far as I've been able to suss it out, it's based on two nonfiction books. And it's about the genocide of indigenous people in, you know, the beginnings of the United States and also about slavery. And I think it may extend into all of the Americas, but I'm not sure. And so he probably will show clips, but it isn't finished. And of course, Ralph Peck is brilliant and he's a brilliant speaker. If you don't know. He is a filmmaker of considerable stature who's made many great films, but the last one was I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin kind of biopic. So I'm very curious about that. I, I'm, I've sort of been waiting to see a, a, a lot of things, but I, I, did, I did just want to flag uh, a movie that's probably already on people's radar just because it's going to be coming out in regular release. I mean, as regular as releases are now uh, in February. And that's Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which is a later addition to the festival. And that's the story of uh, Fred Hampton's rise and betrayal and uh, murder, uh, assassination uh, at the hands of the FBI. So, I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah, good to have it in the festival as well. You should probably say something about the numbers, because in relation to the number of films directed by women, Sundance, the percentages have been rising every year. But this year, it's 50% of the films are directed by women. And there are a very large number of films that deal with race and racism. And one film that I'm interested, I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah, I'm interested in, but the the Raise You Up film is, I should think, Summer of Soul, directed by Questlove. Uh, and Summer of Soul is one of the four opening night films. Someone, I don't know who, uncovered hours and hours of documentary footage that was shot of the Harlem Cultural Festival that was the same summer as Woodstock. And it was just languishing in the basement of some building in Harlem. And they restored it and they made a film of it. I mean, that was a huge festival. 300,000 people attended that festival in Harlem that summer. And uh, so I'm very, very curious to see what they've made of that. Yeah, I, I am too. That's, that's, I don't know, maybe somehow capturing the energy of, of an opening night uh, because I, you know, it, it, we, we can't be in the same room, but I can at least just crank it up uh, and, and, and watch that. I also, I should just say that, you know, we're, these are just some of our own personal picks, plenty more out there in, in the lineups and, and all the sections. And so many films by people 
you've never heard of the directors, you've never heard of the performers. I mean, the festival is just loaded with them. So we've kind of gone for people whose earlier work we know, and I'm sure there are true discoveries there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One other thing, just as kind of a conclusion, since this is a different uh, Sundance edition than than any previous one that uh, you've attended, since we'll be deprived of having that experience of being in the room when a big movie well, just when a movie starts, do you have any 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 movie that leaps to mind, a uh, particular premiere experience from Sundance's past? Oh, my God. Yeah, Donnie Darko. I remember seeing Donnie Darko, I will never forget, sitting next to Gavin Smith, who at that point was the editor of Film Comment, and turning to him and saying, is this as good as I think it is? That was a great one. There have been quite a few. Uh, I remember coming home from Mary Heron's American Psycho and being scared to walk up the stairs from the Egyptian theater on Main Street in town to the place where I've lived all the years I've come to Sundown, which is like two flights above that theater on, on Park Avenue, and terrified to walk up those stairs alone. So there are bunches of them. Yeah. Todd Haynes's, well, all the Todd Haynes films that I saw at Sundance, and Larry Clark's kids. Ah. Larry Clark and Harmony Korean's kids in the Egyptian theater and thinking, am I going to get my head cut off for thinking this is a great movie? <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that that's a movie I, I uh, yeah, I had, I had to wait to see that one a, a little while. I think I saw it at the... Uh, Angelica on Houston, and it was exciting, but probably nowhere near as exciting as being there at the moment of impact. All right. Well, um, there will be more of these episodes, uh, as many as I or you, the listeners, can stand, I guess. And and if I'm lucky, maybe Amy will be able to carve some time out of your uh, marathon viewings. Thank you, Amy, and happy viewing. Happy first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nick. I'll be uh, in touch. (laughs) Yes. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.